Hi gang, Morgan and Isabel here to share. We are looking for a new member for the WOE team to help us edit and cut episodes. If somebody you know, or you yourself, has experience with editing podcasts or even music and is interested in adding us to your portfolio, please reach out. Email womansmail at gmail.com with the subject line editor pretty basic understanding of sound editing software is a good starting point. Yeah, we want this to be mutually beneficial, meaning we'll be able to offer some compensation for your time and are open to supporting any creative goals you have and see how we can work together. Again, email womance, that's W-H-O-A-M-A-N-C-E, mail at gmail.com with the subject line editor. Mail as in mail a letter, not mail as in mister. (laughs) (laughs) Looking forward to hearing from you. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About wigs. About Reagan-era feminism. About belly as double entendre. About sex work. About the businesswoman special. About history trapping women. About one of these days, Alice, straight to the moon. Kneeing your partner. About traveling in the 1800s. About your uncle. About your best friend who marries unwisely. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week on a very special episode of Womance After Dark, we are going to discuss... Evening Star by Katherine Coulter. Originally published under the title Sweet Surrender in 1985. Oh, shit. Are you sure we read the same book? Yeah. Okay. So it's Evening Star <laughs> was republished in 1992 after Sweet Surrender. So, like, I think there's, like, a lot here about the history of, A, like, reprints, and B, the idea that you would change a title eight years after its original printing. There's also a lot here about my personal anxiety that someday we're both going to read different books. And it's every single time we've recorded. By the way, speaking of Evening Star, it's lovely to see you in the twilight again. This is really nice. This is like, you know. (laughs) (laughs) We used to record frequently on evenings and then we became weekend warriors and then we became mornings on weekends. Brunch babes. Yeah, less warriors more i want to say gardeners but i don't know i can't i can't flesh that out with an alliteration but because we've gotten are we old are we older we are older we're older than we were but i also think we respect our time differently and better like we're building better boundaries we're brunch boundaries i'm (laughs) there should be no boundaries between betwixt us you know, they, they swiftly collapse, There should be Morgan. no boundaries betwixt us. <laughs> We're in it to win it, partner. Um, shout out to everyone on CTA uh, who got the privilege and the honor of reading this over my shoulder. I do have the large print edition from Chicago Public Libraries. Bom, 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 bom. I also want to give a shout out to Catherine Coulter's amazing author photograph. She's wearing what I can only describe as a golden embroidered waistcoat and a silk button down with large gold earrings. Don't other people call those vests? 
Sure. The unindoctrinated men call it a vest. Can you see her? Yeah, I absolutely can. We've got uh, a notched lapel. Mm. We have that dark burgundy lipstick. But I'm going to tell you something. There's a glow, so I don't think we're like too deep. We're not like in the thick of the 90s here. No, absolutely not. I think we're still like... It's a a frost. Yes. It's a lovely filter. She looks beautiful. Do you want to read the back of the book? Yeah, I would love to read the back of the book. It's actually the inside flaps. Hardcover. Now, a reading from the flaps. From the New York Times bestselling author, with more than a million copies sold, comes the first exciting book in the Star Quartet series. Never read this before, had no idea this was a part of a series. Gianna Van Cleve has fallen in love with a vicious fortune hunter. Her mother, Aurora, a wealthy shipbuilder, is desperate to save her daughter from this miserable man. At her mother's request, Gianna travels to Rome to spend three months with her uncle, Daniel. It's Daniel, but with an extra E at the end. Daniele. Daniele. Are we racist against Italians if we're wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Daniele. Dan. Uncle Dan. Perfectly fine. <laughs> that seems... That seems... Utterly unoff- inoffensive. <laughs> Uncle Dan. If Gianna has not changed her mind about the man she loves after three months, Aurora will agree to support the wedding. Gianna's journey to Rome takes a turn for the worst, and she soon finds herself trapped in a shocking, decadent world she never knew existed. After, continued on Black Flap, surviving this nightmare, Gianna becomes a woman intent on success. She fights her way to the top in a man's world, only to find that Alex Saxton, who knows all about her past, is determined to destroy her. Wow, what a premise. What a premise. Is your, is the back of your book the same? No, it's not. Oh my god. Well, we've got to compare, don't we? We do. This one starts... Dear Reader, colon, <gasps> Evening Star, formerly titled Sweet Surrender, first appeared in 1985. Now, this novel is where it belongs. It's the first book in what has become the Star Quartet. In Midnight Star, the first book in the former Star Trilogy, you met... Delaney Saxton in San Francisco in 1851. Evening Star features his older brother Alex Saxton with Delaney making a cameo appearance. Gianna Van Cleve, the heroine, has fallen in love with a vicious fortune hunter, so that's the same. Her mother, the renowned ship owner and builder Aurora Van Cleve, is desperate to save her daughter. She agrees to the wedding. She agrees to support Gianna's wedding if Gianna first agrees to spend an unusual three months in Rome with her uncle, Daniele. But Gianna's uncle takes this bargain far beyond what Aurora ever imagined. Thus, Gianna first sees Alex Saxton, not in a society drawing room, but in a brothel. The next time she sees him, she is one of the virgins to be sold to the highest bidder at the infamous Roman flower auction. He wins the bid and her, but not for long. Four years later, when Alex meets Gianna again in London, she has become a woman intent on success in a man's world. Alex is set on revenge. He will have her, and nothing will stop him. Would you make Gianna's bargain with Daniele? Would you keep the bargain? Agree to be part of the Roman flower auction? Let me know. Signed, Catherine Coulter. Okay, let's address, let's take this question by question. First question. Would you make Gianna's bargain with Daniele? 
So what's the bargain, right? Because like this doesn't explain what the bargain is. Yeah. So the bargain is she's going to go spend three months in Rome. She has to submit to everything Uncle Daniele tells her to do. Like she can't really ask questions. She's just got to do it. And she's got to put her back into it. None of this like half-assery, right? Because he is dealing with a teenager. It's important that he has that clause because she is 17 years old at this point. So the idea is... After three months in Rome, if she still wants to marry this, like, fortune hunter, she can. If not... She gets $10,000 from Uncle Daniele. Yeah, she gets $10,000 from her uncle. She's like, great. Because I'm going to marry Randall. And so he's like, that means anything. So there are two elements that Daniele proposes to her mother. First, I'm going to introduce her to actual married women in the gentry. Mm Mm-hmm. And just bore her to death. Because their ultimate vision is that she's going to become a part of the woman-owned family business of shipbuilding. Which Aurora inherited this business from her terrible dead husband and has built it up, right? So the first thing is like, I'm going to show her all of these boring old married women who hate their lives. Second thing I'm going to show her is I'm going to take her to brothels so that she'll see what those men, like she'll know what sex is. She'll know what's expected of her. And the way he frames it to Gianna is like you I'm gonna show you this because you'll need to know how to please a husband I mean he frames it to her that way but he also says that like this is the bare hypocrisy of men right where like wives are not allowed to enjoy sex whores don't enjoy sex this is the hypocrisy of man if you don't make your own decisions you become a pawn make your own decisions so he shows her like the spectrum of womanhood as he conceives of it which is wives and sex workers Right. That's Daniele. And don't worry, he's not like horny for her because he's in his 60s. Uh, he does get to look at her naked almost immediately. <laughs> so, uh, so first question, would you take Uncle Daniel's bargain? $10,000, absolutely. And that's in like their time money. I want That's true. It's way more now. I would take it also in my time money. I 10,000 bucks. Who am I? Fair. Super fair. Uh, you can sponsor Wilman's <laughs> podcast by reaching out to Frolic Media, or you can give to us on our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Womance. This is a disingenuous question because Uncle Daniel only says, you have to do whatever I say, $10,000 or nothing. And she's like, all right, I got you. And then like the literal first ask is take off all your clothes in this brothel. And she's like, wait. And he's like, you said anything. And I was like, this is where fine print becomes really important. (laughs) Isabel, what do you think about the fact that he starts with the brothel because I didn't expect him to start with the brothel I thought he would start with like taking her to a dinner party which we don't get for quite a while after the first brothel she kind of hangs out in that world for a while I think frankly the idea of shocking her into like this is men's appetites this is what sex is like he's shocking her as like a mode of like softening the ground for the argument that is like married life is Trojan horse and terrible. What's the function of it in the text? To start there? To titillate us. Yeah. Yeah. You think it's to titillate? Oh, absolutely. I think, well, yeah, I guess it would, sh- I would have the same function because it's it's not just that like he takes her into the brothel to like show her a brothel and be like, because on the carriage ride, he's like, I just wanted you to get familiar with the space. No, she's like, 
showing her uncle her breasts. Damn, incest is everywhere in this genre. They're not blood related, I'd like to point out. That's like the family we choose. She calls him uncle. She does, absolutely. But he is really just her beloved mother's uh, business partner, which doesn't make it better. Incest is everywhere. But the structure of this part of the humiliation of the like, you've made a deal that you didn't know how to make more circumcept felt very much like our aha chic heartbreak where it's like somebody's transported to a foreign-ish land and the first thing that happens is like an introduction to a harem episode yeah but there is this thing of like this function of like trying to establish her as an ingenue but like we already know that because the chapters leading up to this moment have like shown how like oh man the duel between her mother and her fiance was so good. So this is a book that I'm going to say it. I love the head hopping in this book. I tend to be an advocate for head hopping. I was so disappointed when I learned from Scarlett Peckham that it's generally now considered like a bad thing to do because holy shit, I love it, especially in something like those that Perry return conversation and that so her mother has met her her young suitor and is like not that he's clearly a fortune hunter and she's tried to be subtle about discouraging her daughter away but now she's desperate we spent so much time in aurora gianna's mother's perspective i was shocked by how much time we spent there and was like oh well it's a wonderful subplot it's such a good subplot and randall is atrocious in the most delicious snidely whiplash pole dark fans should recognize him as a george war legan he's just disgusting and he believes so strongly in his own entitlement that you love hating him yes and so when he goes toe to toe with aurora who's trying to protect her daughter and he just like reveals himself as this total and utter ass and like we get both of their perspectives and of course his inner monologue only reinforces his where he's like, oh, I know what this bitch is doing. And he calls her mother a bitch in his head. Yes. And he's like, oh, guess again. I loved that. I thought that was great. <laughs> Baby, I'm a gangster too. Yeah. And he is, but like, it's so interesting because you're right. This book came out in 1985. Greed is good. And his motivations aren't like laziness, right? He has been fucked. Like his father has an addiction he's an alcoholic and a gambling addict and he's lost the family fortune and this guy is like i have no way of living as a working class person like it does have that like reagan thing of like inherited wealth being like inherently like a a cudgel like a a, a, an iron ball around your ankle which is why we should tax them less right because their lives are so hard they have to have the upkeep of the family manor they're so hard They don't know how to live without four butlers. He understands himself as a desperate man. Mm -hmm. And the book has no sympathy for him. Even though like his current situation is completely out of his control. And I thought that was really not the only politically interesting move that this text makes. But like a really great like setting the silverware down. Because when we're first introduced to Aurora via, you know, her, like, fretting over her teenage daughter. And then we see her from her teenage daughter's perspective. And then we see her from the perspective of our villain, right, Randall, who calls her a bitch, right? 
Right. And then we see her from the perspective of her beloved partner who just like respects and supports her. And then we see her from the perspective of Daniele, another business partner who she wanted to have a consensual affair with. He's like, we can't mix business and pleasure, Kara. Yeah. And even though she does, she regularly has men who she goes to the opera with. And what I love is that this book isn't interested in the first act in making you like Aurora. And like the book doesn't defend Aurora, right? She's kind of ultimately like angelic. But I love that it starts with all of these perspectives that are unflattering. But also like frames. I thought that was one of the most interesting thing that I'd ever potentially ever read in a romance that feels like a big statement. But this is it felt so unique because I think if I'd read this book when I was 17, I would have been hard on Gianna. I would have been like, yes, of course, your mother sucks. You love Randall. I get it. You're sheltered. Ingenue. You're going to you're just trying to figure out your wings, baby girl. Yeah. But like as a more mature woman, when Aurora is like sighing in the bath, I didn't teach my daughter well enough. And like there's this scene where Gianna just slams the door and I'm like, God, teenagers are so fucking annoying. And the fact that this like threads that like insane needle where like I can see how much I would have enjoyed Gianna as a younger person. And I enjoy Aurora so much as an older woman, like so much amazing like it's it's something for everybody and the fact that you can like thread that generational line like (laughs) Catherine Coulter hello and it's also that feeling of that like evergreen feeling that you don't you never see articulated but is this universal thing of like you have a vision for your child right and you do everything you can to put them on that track to whatever you consider is success. And then dad gummit, if the only avenue available to you isn't a Swiss finishing school that makes her feel like the only value she has in life is getting married. There is very much this like anti-lean in, you can't have it all kind of perspective in this novel. I'm sure people connected with it when they were reading it in 1985. My book says the copyright's 1984, early 80s either way. Like, I wonder if that felt true. And I'm sure it feels true. It's so hard. (laughs) It's so hard. And I'm so glad that you said that because the first act genuinely believes that there is absolutely no having it all and certainly not having it all at once. Right. And Aurora has made the choice to be a businesswoman and not a fulfilled sexual, like in a long term relationship person. She has a series of like opera dates that she very much enjoys. Yeah. That other part of her life is closed to her because she's focused on this other thing. And then you have Gianna, who's like obsessed with marriage and being loved because that is the only value that she sees for herself unless she wants to be a cold codfish like her mother. And die alone the fact that there is literally that tension and i think like that is the feminist tension of the 1980s because like it's the backlash is approaching this is a very like anti-diane keaton baby boom book it's not even anti it's just like we haven't addressed all of the concerns yet it's very important that her mother is in fact sexually fulfilled and her mother is in fact a sexual person she just doesn't have a romantic long-term partner Mm -hmm. and i think The fact that, like, the text lets you in on the fact that her mom is having sex 
is desirable to men, whether or not that should matter or not, is a question for 2021, right? The fact that the book lets you in on that and then shows you that her daughter thinks of her as a cold fish is saying so much. And it's saying that, like, the backlash is coming, right? Yes. (laughs) And it's because of this, in the case of this novel, this, like, historical context of, oh, well, you could never let your child know that you're fucking your opera dates, right? Because that would be uncouth. But there's also this, like, sense of, like, propriety is the thing that is going to lead to the backlash. This antiquated idea of propriety. Oh, my God. Catherine Coulter, share your crystal ball with the rest of us. Seriously, you Cassandra in the coal mine. Hillary Clinton should have never had to make those cookies. She never should have had to cry on the campaign trail. Matt, everyone's like, make cookies, don't cry! Except do cry because you're not enough of a woman. And like this book, it's so naked about that tension. And like it's naked with both the dichotomy between Gianna and Aurora. But then when we get to Rome and Uncle Daniel's like, you have to do whatever I say. And his dichotomy is unfulfilled, bored housewife or sex worker. And like the fact that like those are the dichotomies It's like you can be a businesswoman or you can be loved or you can be a wife or you can be in charge of yourself and have agency. Boy, howdy is this book dealing in total absolutes. Yeah. There's something so naked about it. And like, I don't genuinely like absolutes because like only a Sith deals in absolutes and like whatever. Only a Sith and your podcast (laughs) co-host. But it was so revealing to have it like it's so a store it's undeniable when the spectrum is laid out like that and that's what was so fascinating to me about the gianna aurora move and then when we get to rome the rome move well then i've got to say now i'm seeing this first scene of taking her to the brothel and having her expose her breasts and embarrass herself as being like yeah you're not going to be able to choose like independence and not be objectified in a different way. Absolutely. There is no good choice under patriarchy. There is no good choice under patriarchy. Next question. What's the next question on the back of the book? The next question is, would you keep the bargain? Uh Uh-huh. Because... She can leave at any time. Well, let's talk about when the bargain gets tough. So Uncle Daniele is finding Gianna to be a very plucky, stubborn main character. Which is attributed to her Englishness, which I think is so silly. Right? (laughs) Hilarious. And so he has to keep upping the ante. And like he's kind of getting ahead of himself in ways that I don't think he originally anticipated. And the book does a really good job of like explaining his internality because he cannot get her to like give up this Randall fortune hunter. And so at first it's like you're just going to go to the brothel and you're just going to like be fondled by the madam and like we're going to have and like and then you'll figure it out. Yeah. You flirt with the men, but we're always going to lie to them and say that your services are booked. And then it's At the end of the night, we're going to watch people have sex through a secret one-way mirror room. Which is insanity. (laughs) And then he, like, assures her also in, like, a very, like, is this 1984? Is this 1985? I feel like if I ask, everyone's going to think it's Orwellian. But is this, in a very 1985, like, is this 1985 move? He's like, don't worry. They've all consented to have sex in this room with a one-way mirror. And I'm like, have they? Have they? Do they know that that's how that works? 
This is directly contradicted later on. It is, which is amazing. (laughs) But also to have her be like, this is creepy and pervy. And he's like, no, no, no. They like it. That's part of it. Yeah. And so then she witnesses all of these sex acts with lots of different bodies. And this is also a book, like, does not shy away from the fact that, like, sex can be gross. And also very critical of the male body. Very critical of the male body. Which only serves to then highlight our hero's body. So delightful, though. It's like, we had that book when we were growing up, Everybody Poops. But we haven't had that book, Everybody Fucks. And not everybody fucks, but everybody. Every corporeal form. (laughs) Who wants to have sex has sex, right? Oh my God, I heard this. Oh my God, TikTok, fuck me up. Heard this thing where this therapist was like, a lot of women aren't present in their bodies during sex because their main job is to be sexually attractive at all times. And it just gets ratcheted up the more they take off their clothes, right? So by the time someone's actually like inside of you, you're just like concentrate, like you're never fully there. And that makes it difficult to have, like, a true embodied ownership sexual experience. I think what was interesting about the book is that all of these men with, like, not traditionally attractive bodies are completely unselfconsciously nude. And the book makes this whole big point about this young married couple where the husband doesn't go to these brothels, right? We don't see him. We see the other husbands in the brothels. We don't see this guy. But his wife is super restricting her diet to stay thin, even though he's fat, because he found her unattractive after she gave birth to their first child. What a point to make. (laughs) Like, this book is playing chess with your psychology. But I've never read a book that I think was so honest, especially in romance, about the mundacity of patriarchy's villainy, right? That you could have this boorish, ugly, disgusting man humping away on a beautiful young woman. And he's entitled to her because of his money, but also because of his maleness. But also their wives are beautiful. Oh, so beautiful and so young and come from the best families and have money and are also educated and all this other stuff. And then they're left at home to do drapes, like to like do altar like sigils or whatever. And like don't want to get into a whole thing about women's work and how it's undervalued because that's a conversation that like I feel like we always have in romance is doing a really good job about how we need to value women's work and how important that is. This book does an insanely good job about talking about the way that patriarchy is a system of entitlement that other people, all people, are forced to buy into, women and men alike. Even good men, even good women, this is the system. There are no good choices. This is the world. Yeah. And so we get, so this is one of the books that I think I was just proofreading our episode on Neon Gods. And how, you know, I'm constantly asking the question, like, are you interested in kinky sex or do you just want someone who communicates with you? And how, like, these books that, like, advertise themselves as kinky aren't really doing anything kinky. If you are actually into kinky shit, pick up Evening Star by Catherine Coulter. Because not only do you get the voyeurism with, like, all the, like, ball-slapping, sweaty... 
And it is ball slappy and slap. Oh my god, so there's a whole sweaty. description about balls slapping. It's Rome in the summer in 1851 and there's no air conditioning. Everyone is sweating like a gladiator, okay? Like, no one's dewy, everyone's sweaty. <laughs> no one's dewy. No one's dewy in this book. And then there's just like a teenage girl and her elderly uncle watching you sitting on a fancy chair on the other side of a mirror trying to teach her a life lesson. Like this is actual kink. Is my threshold too high? I don't think so. But then we also get a scene of actual rape fantasy kink. Can we pause before we get there? Because like there's another scene that I want to talk about before we get to the rape fantasy kink. Yes, let's talk about the other scene. Yes. Because there's yes. like also the thing about Catherine Coulter that I think is really important to talk about as a craftsperson is that so we have like this escalating domino effect of Gianna not knuckling under Uncle Daniel's like whole project. Wives are unhappy and sad and calorie restricting and not having sex that is enjoyable and their husbands get to do whatever the fuck they want all the time in both spheres. It's hypocrisy. You don't get agency in either one. Open your eyes. Randall is this man. Choose not to be his wife. There are no good choices. Like, there's not, like, Uncle Daniel isn't like, hey, there's going to be a white knight. That is 100% not it. But there is this weird scene where he, like, cannot get her to knuckle under. So he's like, I'm going to put you onto this Roman thing where I'm going to sell your virginity. And you're going to be one of these, like, Roman flowers. And people are going to bid for you. And this is where we meet our main character, Hero, for the second time. We're getting way ahead of ourselves at the point where she agrees to participate in the flower market. So I thought you were going to talk about when we first meet our hero. Okay, sorry. Let's go way out of order because I love this question and answer format. Are you okay with it? Because I want to talk about my sexiest part. Oh, man. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Do you keep the bargain gets you to your sexiest part? Here's the thing. My sexiest part. So you guys know. You guys know at this point, we've explained that she's watching people bone through a one-way mirror. One day, she's at the brothel. And I think it's important to note that she's got a lot on her mind. Like, these women, these wives, are not just wives in this book. They're really fleshed out. Like, there's the one who's, like, too brilliant to be a housewife, so she's just become mean. And there's the one who dreams of traveling and really wants to ask her husband to take her to the World's Fair in England, in London, but feels like he doesn't want to take her on his business trips with her. And, like, she's a mother now. Mothers don't travel. She's dead (laughs) even though these women are greatly restricted they're often mean they're always like full-fledged human beings as are the sex workers we get to know them through their different personalities like they're mothering or they're sassy you know but none of them are mean which I think was an excellent dichotomy because they have more agency over their choices where she says, like, I can't believe you'd let yourself do that. And she's like, why? I make this much money. This is what I can do with the money that I'm making. This is how I support myself. And like one of them has like a little sister and she's like, this is great. This is like, I'm having a good time. We get this scene where a tall American, main feature, tall. Super tall. Statuesque. Corn fed. (laughs) 
shows up with his Italian business partner who's very fixated on Gianna. And he could not give a shit about Gianna and her. What color is her first wig? I think she's a she's a redhead in the first one and then the blonde at the auction. Yeah, yeah. So she's like, you know, he could not give a fuck. He's like, God, she's weird. She's just standing there. He's much more interested in, in like, Margot, who's, like, conversant and charming. And, like, you can tell she's kind of Gianna's personal hero, like her girl crush so Gianna gets taken up to her one-way mirror with her family friend to watch them have sex and in walks this American and she sees uh we see along with her Margot and the American man Alex Saxton and as much as this book will talk about the ball slapping the book also talks about the leg shaking Mm. the book talks about the rolling the roles. When we see Alex have sex, it's like all of the best parts of unselfconscious lovemaking. It's feminist Tumblr. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He comes in and he takes off his shirt and it's like his amazing back. And he's like tall and has like a V. <laughs> like we're not we're not even like right because we're in the mirror. We're like watching this train happen. He parts her legs and throws her knees over his shoulders and then is like forcefully cupping her hips and pelvis to eat her out for all all he's worth. And then that's the first time Gianna's like, oh, maybe I'm into this. She starts to feel titillated. And there's also something about like the safety. Suddenly, like being a voyeur is understood as something that can be exciting and something that can feel like safe and something that can feel like a way of gaining understanding and like, oh, I like that. Oh, I want that. But also we still have the like, now the ball slapping is nice. <laughs> yeah, if if it's this guy, I don't mind it. it. Yeah, and it's not just like, it is his beautiful body. Which, by the way, like, I can't think of, like, a romance hero who I was like, it's a beautiful body. But, like, this one, I'm like, it's not just that he's tall. Like, it talks about, like, what his back looks like. It also talks about, like, his inner thighs. I don't know that I've ever seen in a romance novel a man's inner thighs. Yes. Yes. And, like, the way the, like, hair glistens when he's sweating. Like, it's so good. Very corporeal. It's so good. And like Margot, our erstwhile, you know, professional is like, oh my God, gets like her feet run out from under her because she's having such a great time. And we get, you know, the leg shaking and the gushing and like the like gross part. Like if you're a man, if you're someone with male anatomy, if you're someone with a penis and balls and a belly and you've been reading this book up to this point, perhaps you've had the same experience that I, as a person with different anatomy, had once I reached this, my sexiest part, which is a, a real, like, the book is specific, and there's something about the distance of having it from Gianna's perspective, which is, like, a slight confusion, so it just has to be a very literal description, I think, is one of the reasons it's so strong. And, like, zeroed-in fixation that romance novels do so well. This, like, collage. This is how we meet the hero of the novel. He is eating out. He's, like, embarrassed that our heroine is staring at him. And then he's eating out, slapping ass, 
sweaty thighed. And she says, you don't have to do this. Like, you've paid for the hour. I'll do it. And he's like, this is what makes me feel good. And I was like, now I know you're a good person. (laughs) (laughs) But uh uh-oh. And if I saw that once, if I saw that once, I would be like, I'm sticking through this bargain for the rest of the time. It could happen again. It could happen again. So you would keep the bargain. Would you keep the bargain? After seeing Alex Sexton, tall American, go down on my favorite sex worker friend slash hero, absolutely, I would keep the bargain. (laughs) Also $10,000, right? Like Bargain cap. Next question. The next question. Agree to be part of the Roman flower auction, which this is where I want to talk about (laughs) craftsmanship of plot. Because the Roman flower auction, like gross. People are selling virginity. Virginity is a construct, blah, blah, blah. Gross. Not into it. What is crazy about the tension of this scene is that Alex shows up and is like, oh, hello, tall American. We've met you before. And he recognizes Gianna and sees that she's in a different wig. And he's like, oh, it's that sad, shy girl from the other night. But also it's a blonde wig, which makes me think maybe Alex would like me. Yeah, he totally would. He's into blondes. So he's like, oh, no. And he sees that Uncle Daniel is like really invested in her but also this other guy who he works with and he knows is like a real bdsm guy right and is like not into consent and so he gets concerned and we're ruthlessly in his head and in gianna's head and gianna and uncle daniel have a deal uncle daniel is gonna stop the bidding at a certain amount and like then they're just gonna leave and she's gonna know what it feels like to be bid upon in this setting because that's also what's gonna happen to her in england at the marriage market and he's like look they're not different right And so they have this deal, but Alex doesn't know that they have a deal. So then there's this insane dramatic irony where like all of the pieces of the board are set. The audience knows everything, but can do nothing to stop anything once it's been set in motion. The bidding starts. And of course, Alex is trying to protect Gianna from her uncle who she doesn't want to be protected from. So then this bidding war happens. They have insane amounts of money. The uncle doesn't have the money that he's bid. And so then he doesn't have the cash on him. And Alex calls him out. He's like, you've got to have $6,000 cash. And then Alex is like, I guess she's mine because I have the cash in hand. He goes like, and then she struggles. And he's like, dude, I just saved you. Time out, time out, time out, time out. We've got it. We've got to explain. He went up to Gianna and he started talking to her. And he was like, because he felt this weird recognition of like the girl who was staring at him too much. He doesn't know that yet. So he goes up to her to try to figure out where he knows her from. She starts sniping at him because she's uncomfortable. And he thinks she's so witty and funny. And his co-worker is like, look out, Alex. She's a real bitch. (laughs) Kitty got claws. You know, like that kind of stuff. And Alex is like, yeah, she does. I like this. I like this about her. And Alex starts thinking like, God, you know, like I would love to have like a regular mistress. And I could just like keep her in Paris. And God, I like, oh, like all these older guys looking at her and like they're not going to treat her well. And like she's a virgin. Right. And she seems uncomfortable and like I I at least know how to please a woman. She seems like the most special virgin. 
of all the virgins at the flower market. And so then he's like worried about her and also wants her. And so this bidding war ensues. And then he gets her in this very strange, awful confrontation because the madam is also in on the deal. And so then her hands are tied because Alex has the cash and Uncle Daniel doesn't. And so Gianna has to leave with him and she's fighting him because she knows this isn't what's supposed to happen and everything's terrible and she's afraid of being raped. And he cold clocks her. Not only does he punch her in the face, but he punches her into unconsciousness. And then he's got her unconscious body in his arms. And then Uncle Daniel shows up from the shadows and cold clocks him with a cane on his... With a bottle of... With a bottle of champagne? I thought it was his cane. I thought it was a bottle of champagne. Whatever. Either way, it's very intense. You know, he falls into the alley and he feels like this was a setup from the start. Which begins his cold. Yeah. And that he just gave away his cash. Exactly. And this starts the cold fire of revenge inside Alex Saxton's heart. But I want to like pause on that because I have not read violence against from a hero against the heroine like that. And the whole time the hero in his head is thinking, I'm such a good person and she's not letting me be a good person. (laughs) My first thought was, okay, so he cold clocks her in this misunderstanding. That means that we won't have a virginal rape scene later. Like we won't have to do the Johanna Lindsay, Kathleen Woodowis thing later. And I'm so like, I don't feel good about this situation, but I also like, I recognize what this is trying to do. Dear reader, that's not what this was. No, this was not bumpers on the bowling alley. Absolutely not. What I think this scene sets up is that this text is very comfortable and very honest about the duality of human nature. Because we know what the fucking score is with Gianna being in this auction. He doesn't. He thinks he has done her the greatest favor. He did not let her get naked. A lot of the girls had to take off all their clothes. They had to have their hymens inspected on stage in front of everybody. And he's like, I have saved her this. I'm such a good guy. Meanwhile, we do get Gianna's dialogue at him, which is like, this is a misunderstanding. My uncle is the guy who is also bidding on me. He is going to pay you back. He'll pay you back full stop. This is not what you think it is. Please let me go. But he has convinced himself that he's done the right thing. And he, more than that, just wants her. And so he is going to be a bad person now. He can have this narrative of himself And he can also, in actuality, be a bastard. And this book will hold these two truths for the rest of the text. And the book never makes, like, a huge deal. And he never, like, becomes, like, this perfect person who understands everything he's doing fully or self-interrogates. He does live, I think, an examined, a self-examined life as much as Gianna does. But I think, like, he comes to the wrong conclusions for the sake of self-preservation. And this book doesn't just do it in his personal relationships. It also does it in his structural relationships, slavery specifically. Slavery specifically! Yeah. This book is not pulling punches that way. And it also does it with her mother's paramour. Yeah. Who calls the Irish poor buggers but does nothing to help them. And I think like this moment when we get his internality of like, why is she scratching me? I'm going to punch her 
for her own good. And knowing what's going on and that what Gianna is saying is true and that it's not gibberish and that if he just listened, he would understand. But he's clearly like too hot for her in this context. And hot for his own heroism. Yes, exactly. And like, that's the thing. The book is like, oh, yeah, he eats he eats this woman out, but it's partially just so he can be like, oh, I like to eat you out. Because I'm a good man. I'm the very best customer. <laughs> I tip well, so it's fine that I'm totally shitty to my server. Exactly. And this is that book. I don't know that I've ever read a romance like this before because both of the characters are unlikable in very strange but like insanely honest ways. And not in Judith Ivory ways where it's like they're just assholes struggling towards the light. Like the, these these are just assholes struggling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You feel as the reader you're like dragging the hero and heroine of Beast to the finish line and you're like Jesus Christ how are we getting here? I can't carry the ring Mr. Frodo but I can carry you two bastards. Whereas like in this book it's like Oh, yeah. oh, God, we're all dying collections of cells, <laughs> trying and failing all the time. That's the thing. The characters in this book are trying and failing all the time and sometimes trying and succeeding. Sometimes. For me, oh, the successes are so rich because we see them try and fail. Yeah. One of the things that was so difficult for me about this book and one of the most pleasurable and also my weirdest part is this book's insistence on the complexity of humanity. (laughs) And so we get to America, like... How do we get to America? Alex Sexton shows up four years later because, of course, Gianna's learned her insane and terrible lesson from Uncle Daniel, goes home, is like, Mama, you were right. I'm going to say no to the fortune hunter. I'm going to embarrass him in Hyde Park. Well, we haven't even talked about the rape scene. Which scene is that? The rape fantasy scene. So Gianna, she has a friend from the finishing school in Rome who's very interested in this one guy. And initially her uncle is like encouraging this guy's friend's fixation on her. And she talks about how she gets like hit on by this guy who's like obviously very obsessed with Lord Byron. It's like classic soft boy. Like this book is also talking about proto soft boys. And she turns him down. And then she has this conversation with her uncle and she's like, listen, like, I know that all of these men go to the brothel, but like, my friend's in love and like, he's not going to be like that. So her uncle's like, okay, come with me. And it turns out, trigger warning, trigger warning, trigger warning, her friend's boyfriend uh, has fantasies about raping women and being cuckolded. So he takes Gianna to watch one of these scenes that he's participating in. Gianna sees like, a strange couple having sex on a bed. Then in walks her friend's boyfriend who's like, how dare you sleep with someone else? And then they enact a pantomime. They enact a pantomime of beating her for having sex with someone else and then pantomime raping her. And her uncle's like, this is what some men like. Like, you think that you can say, like, sexy enough for your husband What if this is what he wants? Are you willing to get, like, punched in the face? Which also, 
holy shit, this book is making this crazy point about sex workers, which depending on what escalation actually means, we don't fully understand it yet, but may or may not actually be a utility. But visceral and like actually kinky. Yeah, because not only does he come in and like punish her because it's both a beating and like a spanking, and then he is fellatiated and then he throws her off of his dick to the other guy in the room and is like, I'm going to watch you fuck her now because she is like a degraded person and I'm going to watch you fuck her because that's what she deserves. It's cuckolding and it's non-con-con in a book from 1985. Yeah, Marty McFly, man. You thought Biff and- <laughs> Marty McFly! That's such a good boy! Back to the fucking future was out when this book was out. Yep, the same year. <laughs> yeah. Here's, like, the other thing is, like, kink has always been present in romance novels. Why is it that Fifty Shades of Grey broke through and made kinky sex acceptable? I think it's, you know, e-readers, yes. Mm -hmm. And, like, my initial thought was, like, maybe it's, like, because there are props, you know? Because, like, Joanna Lindsay, any of these Joanna Lindsays, if you're interested in domination and submission, like, they're going to they're gonna tickle your fancy, Spanking. But why is it that Fifty Shades of Grey, like, brought it to the mainstream in the way that it did? And I almost think, new theory, are you ready? It's because Fifty Shades of Grey was universally understood as bad. So if you told someone you read it, you could be like, <laughs> right? Guilty pleasure. And a guilty pleasure can excuse all form. Like, you don't have to own up to being like, I liked it. If it's... In a bad book, you can always, like, backpedal and be like, <laughs> stupid, right? Whereas, like, if you're going to find something, like, you could also have the excuse, e-reader excuse of, like, I just read this random book. Everybody was talking about it. Um, do you want to pinch my nipples, maybe? Whereas, like, reading a romance novel as mainstream as they actually are, like, they aren't discussed, much less is the actual content of the books discussed in the mainstream, I had no idea every single Joanna Lindsay was going to involve a spanking. I had no idea that every single Kathleen Woodowis was going to involve a non-consensual sex scene. And I'm more inclined right now to say non-consensual rather than rape because it is a fantasy, right? It is a rape fantasy being enacted. And oftentimes it's like a means to an end. It's not even the thing itself. Anyways, I mean, there's a lot for me to like look at there but like I had no idea that existed because I just heard the term bodice ripper and thought it meant that on the cover of the books they were bust like their breasts were ripping the bodice not that like a man was ripping their clothes open right yeah no that was absolutely my understanding of clinch cover so it was weird when people were like bodice rippers are anti-feminist and I was like well her boobs are big like they're just she's busting out like yeah <laughs> yeah. Maybe we should call them bodice busters. Sure. Because, like, also in any of the clinch covers, they're never ripping each other's clothes off. It's always, like, cupping and caressing. <laughs> and it's, like, very little, like, ripping. Yeah. So that's a misnomer. Yeah, but that was the thing. Like, well, and it's, like, an in, it's like in knowledge, right? 
Whereas, like, Fifty Shades of Grey became general knowledge. They talked about it not on the fucking Today Show. So if you wanted to talk to your partner about what you were interested in, or you wanted to talk to a friend about what you were interested in, like, it's really easy to, like, dip your toe in that water and just make a little splash and giggle and run away if you need to, or, you know, jump right in. And then explore the fact that, like, you're not actually into kink. You just want your partner to talk to you. (laughs) Yeah. But it's, like, this is here in the pages. And, like, I assume if you're interested in non-con-con, this book, that scene is played out fully and lives with the uncomfortability of it. So if you're interested in that kink, I do think this book would be a safe way for you to, like, read one of those scenes. Probably even safer than, like, watching pornography about it because you know that like think that this particular uh sex worker only lives in the pages of this book is vapor in your mind not actually getting physically hurt which you need to remember like sex workers who work in film whenever they're getting like physically hurt they're getting physically hurt for real and uh they should unionize yeah this book is wild wild so like that's the end of her roman holiday she goes back to England. Yeah. She gets back. She she meets her boyfriend. She thinks to herself, does he pay sex workers to pretend to rape them? And she's like, absolutely, this guy does. So no thank you. Mom was right all along. And he thinks to himself, what the fuck is she talking about with riding crops? She knows about the opera singer. <laughs> she knows about up. the opera singer. Head hopping so good. Head hopping so good. Four years later... She's a wizened partner in her mother's shipping business. Alex Saxton walks in in all of his American tall glory, and he's like, it's that bitch from the fucking Roman flower auction who did me dirty and stole my money. I am going to blackmail her for a weekend, and I'm going to get the sex that I was promised. Isabel, we've been recording for an hour. I want to know if you want to take a break. And do you want to maybe do this in two parts? Oh, shit. You want to do this in two parts? All right. We can do this in two parts. It'll be like the Roman holiday and the uh, the American and England wise inside of it. The four years later. Roman holiday, New York minute. Join us for part two. Woli guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womans and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womanspodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.